Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where we know how time works. And <laughs> we know how the differences between coasts work, and we're very intelligent. We have all been to college. Tensions uh, are awesome. <laughs> never confusing. Never. Never. But amazingly enough, you, like, are connected to me. Um, <laughs> mentally, and you're like, I know what she's talking about, even though she doesn't. I speak fluent um, Lauren. You do. Uh, <laughs> I am Lauren Humphreys Brooks, and with me, as always, is Karen Peterson. Hello, Karen. Hello. <laughs> we are, the reason why we're confused, or at least I'm confused, is because we are recording on a Friday, not a Saturday, at night, not in the morning, so it's all just very, very Up weird. Up is down, left is yeah. right. I'm just like my poor dog is all kinds of confused. He's like, why, why, why do you, why are you locking me out? Let, no, let me back in. When's dinner? <laughs> poor boy. Anyway, how are you doing, Karen? I'm doing okay. How are you? I am pretty good. I'm actually really excited about the topic today because I have a lot of things to say. I am excited about it too. I think cool. it's a good one, and I am so glad that you. Uh, suggest it. Well, so our topic today is going to be folk horror and specifically the folk horror documentary that is currently on Shudder. But before we get into that, we did have a few questions um, that ad addressed actually our, a little bit about our episode last week and then an, a question from uh, one of our lovely patrons who asked us about this and we wanted to wait until we'd actually uh, all seen the film that he wanted us to talk about. But to start out with, this is a question from uh, Eduardo at E.A. E. Gigante. Uh, do you think that modern movies and shows try too hard to justify a character's bad deeds or behavior, as if the audience can't accept that some people are just evil or jerks? Why must every bad character be sanitized or have his or her actions explained away, such as they mean well, they come from a broken home? And this one is, is specifically in reference to the character of Nate on Ted Lasso. Um, but I think it's a, it's a good general question because it is one of those things that we see a lot of where, um, you know, characters that behave badly, we're like, well, but you know, they, their dad was mean to them when they were a kid or they have, they come from a bad background, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I, what are your thoughts on this, Karen? I, I think that I have my own feelings about, I actually love characters that are just bad, that are just like, I'm evil because I'm evil. That's what I am. I'm the bad guy. And I kind of enjoy that. Um, it might not necessarily be as realistic, though. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the short answer to Eduardo's question is yes. <laughs> I do think that there are a lot of times where movies and shows try too hard to justify a character's, you know, bad behavior. Um there's a much longer answer to that, though, I think. And um, I I think that the, the problem doesn't come from 
attempting to justify or explain why somebody is the way they are. It's in uh, what we, what we are supposed to do with that information, which is like, it comes back to, you know, how there's a lot of, of thoughts of like, oh, girls think that they can like fix a bad guy. Like girls like bad boys because they want to fix them. And, and so when a character is presented in a way that like, oh, well now we know this about them and now we can fix them. That I think is disingenuous to how people are. And I think it, it gives a false impression of what is possible when it comes to psychology. But I think that explaining why someone is bad, what, like, for example, specifically the character of Nate in Ted Lasso, um, we know that Nate has been bullied for his entire life by his father and by probably every kid he went to school with and by the whole team in the first season, egged on by Jamie Tart. And so when he starts to get some power and authority in the second season, he doesn't know what to do with it because he's never had, A, he's never had a good role model until Ted came along of what being a leader is. And B, he is in a situation now where he can make some some choices and, and have a little payback against people that have been terrible to him. And, and also often, uh, to people who didn't do anything to deserve it, but he's got so much pent up emotion. And it's, the thing is that like understanding where Nate came from, if we just dropped into the end of season three and the, the Nate that we met at the end of the season was the only Nate that we knew. And then we started to find out who he was before. I think it would have been a much less satisfying, um, story, which I think that's kind of one of the problems that we get into now is we have these bad characters and then we'll do a movie that tries to explain why they became that way. And sometimes it's interesting, but a lot of times it ends up not being so. Yeah. Well, and I, th I think in the case of Nate, because like you say, because we've seen his evolution, we've seen kind of, and we like him like the yeah. first season, we really like him and actually We're rooting like, for him. Yeah. I like him in pieces actually in the second season, because you could, but you can see the, we talked about it before. You can see the monstrosity underlying him. Right. And a lot of it is because of the way that he's treated, but it's also because of the way he responds to his treatment. Um, and the, the kid needs help. He needs therapy. He really does. Uh, and but he hasn't been given any of the tools to kind of function as a full adult, and I I think that 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 development does show us that you know someone can be good, and then begin to basically get kind of be allowed to 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 demonstrate all of the nasty things that I think all of us have in us you know anyone who's been bullied anyone who's been mocked at any point in your life at some point you're like well I just want to get my own back right mature growing human beings recognize at some point that you know that's not the mentality you want to take into life other people don't and that's and so Nate has basically gone in the wrong direction and he needs some kind of help but he also needs to be able to help himself um, so in terms, so we understand where he comes from. We understand why he reacts the way that he does, but the show does not endorse it. You know, we were talking last week about, um, uh, depiction, depiction, not equaling endorsement, but depiction also not equaling critique. I think that the show understands that Nate's behavior is wrong, um, and that it isn't justified. 
by the way that the world has treated him in the past. And that that's kind of the, the tension that develops. A lot of people who got angry about his character were angry because they liked him so much. And now he was going in a direction that they didn't like, but that's, that's very much the reality um, in a lot of ways of those kinds of people. Uh, to, to go back to this question, just like, well, you know- Sorry, actually, I'm just gonna jump in here. Look at what happened with Jamie Tart. Yeah, that's He's yeah, this exactly. asshole in season one. And, you know, funny, but we watch him and we're just like, oh my gosh, this guy sucks. And then later on when you get to know like, oh, well, his dad is terrible. It's like, of course he became this way. And then he starts to reform. But it's interesting that they, that they in Ted Lasso, managed to do both of those transformations in a way that... Um, really takes you on a journey with those characters. But I think if we had met Jamie, or sorry, if we had met Nate in a similar situation to how we met Jamie, it we wouldn't like Nate at all. No, yeah, exactly. And, and the thing with Jamie is that Jamie is told multiple times, you have to put in the work. Yeah. You know, I, I will, you know, Ted tells some other people tell him, I will help you. But I am not going to say you weren't an asshole when you were an asshole. Exactly. Um, and you are going to have to put in the work to become a better human being. And that's what happens. To, and he matures as a result. He basically, he decides that he's going to do that, that that's, he doesn't want to be that person anymore. Mm -hmm. um, the problem with Nate is that no one has recognized or no one has said to Nate, you're an asshole now, right? You're being right. an asshole and you need to, you need to change the direction of your life. Mm -hmm. um, but then but we yeah. see... Uh Sorry, but then we see other characters, and <laughs> at the risk of getting a whole bunch of hateful comments all over again, but movies like Joker, where <laughs> we've known the character of Joker for years, for decades, and the fun thing about him is he's just evil and chaotic for the sake of being evil and chaotic, and then you have this movie that tries to give this backstory, doesn't doesn't necessarily try to say that who he becomes is okay. At least, I don't think that Todd Phillips is trying to say that it's okay, although I don't know that that message is completely correct, uh, at least what we get on the screen. But, but it's an attempt to explain that, oh, he's a product of this shitty healthcare system, and he has this disability, and he's treated like shit by everyone around him, so his descent into this crazy chaotic person is is sort of not his fault and is inevitable and i know a lot of people like joker but that's the that's an example of where i feel like you could you could do that kind of storyline with other characters but part of the fun of the joker is that he doesn't have a reason yeah exactly but and also you know and the issue with the joker is also that um in the way that todd phillips interprets him is that it's this excuse it is an yeah. excuse yeah. it's saying like well this is what happens when you have sad disaffected white men it's just like you know that most people who come from bad situations don't turn out to be psychopathic killers right that's exactly. like not that's not you know most people with mental issues do not go crazy and murder everybody like that's just not what happens and so there is this like it's this justification but it's ultimately this this just you know, like we should, 
it, it's some of the arguments that we hear in real life about like, you know, men, well, women didn't pay attention to him. So he just had to kill everybody. And it's mm -hmm. like, that's not an excuse. Right. That well, you right. Don't and then you don't get do cheered in the middle of a city street by a bunch of, you know, rabid fans. <laughs> so <sighs> in yeah. terms of the like villains just being allowed to be villains, I, I've said before, one of my favorite villains in Shakespeare is Iago. Mm -hmm. And I think he's a great villain because he spends the entire play literally saying to himself, why am I doing this? What purpose do I have to do this? Well, I've got a few different reasons, but I don't think any of those reasons completely explain why I'm doing this. What the hell, me? And and I <laughs> yeah. like that about him because he's actually, he's just like, I'm a villain. That's why I'm doing it, because I'm bad. And I, I like that, that concept of this villain's motivation is doing it simply because they're bad. And there's a lot, and in terms of art, there's a lot of fun that you can get out of that. You know, Cruella de Vil. Cruella de Vil's just evil. <laughs> There's right. nothing yeah. wrong with Cruella just being evil. You know, she wants to skin puppies. Exactly. We do not need an explanation as to why she wants to skin puppies. She's well, bad. That's why. Right. Right. Exactly. And so when they did this Cruella movie with Emma Stone, which is actually a pretty fun movie and the aesthetic is great, but what they had to do, because obviously they couldn't come up with a good explanation for why she would want to skin puppies, is they had to create an entire separate storyline that basically just uses her name and her look with the, you know, the black and white hair and everything and create an entire different background that basically indicates that like, oh, well, everything you heard about me is a lie. I never skinned puppies. I love puppies. I have some, you know, it's like... They had to totally change that entire storyline to make this backstory work. Yes, because she skins puppies. That's exactly. her backstory. That is her motivation. She wants to skin the puppies and, and make a coat. Yeah. Like, <laughs> let her be bad. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah exactly. Exactly. Uh, Maleficent would have been would have worked okay like i thought that that was interesting reimagining why she was so bad i just wish that it had been something more interesting than jilted lover yeah it, well and i think that we, we've talked about the the disney villainesses before i yeah. think that one of the interesting things when you do get into these like oh we're going to tell the backstory of the evil queen right mm -hmm. or whoever is that you are talking about these patriarchal archetypes right yeah that are like they're they're bad because they're women who want power basically um and and so there are really interesting places to go with that story and that's a, that's actually going to be one of the things i'd like to talk about with the folk horror stuff um but but so that's something that you can kind of play with a little bit more there are other characters they're just like they're bad because they're bad they're bad because they're the villains and we don't you know, I agree. We don't need, you know, we're going to, they, well, actually someone was mean to them in grade school. So they just had to murder everyone. Um, it's, it's that kind of thing that it, it does get very exhausting. And I do agree that it's, it's, um, it comes, often it turns into an excuse for villainy rather than just allowing villains to be villains. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so thank you so much for your question. Hope that like helped. 
or, or answered it. Um, the other question that we had, and this was from a while ago, uh, but I actually finally saw the movie, so we could talk about it. As we promised you, Connor. Here we go. <laughs> Connor, you asked us about um, how Lorraine specifically approaches biopics and about our, our thoughts about Jackie and um, Spencer. Uh, which I, I've now seen both of them. So, I, and I think that at least when it comes to Spencer, Karen and I have slightly different reactions to it. Um, I actually really liked Spencer. I, I, I think that there are some issues with it that I wasn't a fan of, but I, one of the things that I like, at least in terms of the, the um, I've, I've also seen um, Lorraine did Neruda, right? Um, I love Neruda. Yeah, and I really liked that too. And I and I think it's very much in the same vein in some ways as Jackie and Spencer. Um, but one of the things that I liked about Spencer and that I liked about Jackie as well is this kind of embedding, uh, embedding the viewer in the psyche of the the person that you're exploring. So it's not a biopic in the sense that we're not seeing, you know, here's the story of the life of. Um, it's much more psychological and you, you begin to see the world through their eyes. One of the things that I really liked about Spencer was the fact that after a while, it's like, oh, this is a horror film. Like, this is actually a horror movie. This is a movie about a woman imprisoned in a castle. Um, and, and I liked that about it because you began to, it, I, I felt that everything that was happening around her, you always had to remember that it was being filtered through a very skewed and desperate perspective. This is a woman who's basically breaking down uh, and cannot stand the, the world that she is inhabiting. And I like the fact that rather than telling this kind of straight, um, here's the story of Princess Diana, here's the story of um, Jackie Kennedy, we actually got more of their psychologies and their experiences in a very small space of time. Right, Jackie is is post Jack's um, assassination. Spencer is just like a week, a Christmas weekend, um, and so I I liked that kind of insight. And obviously, it's fiction, it's fictionalized completely, as all biopics are. But I felt like there was a reality that that uh, Lorraine was getting at, whether or not he was successful at it. So, Karen, what are yeah. your thoughts? Um, so with with Jackie, which oddly i ended up seeing the same day as neruda i had like a pablo lorraine double feature at a film festival it just worked out that way but anyway so that was weird like going from neruda which was a film that i loved to jackie which i had been anticipating and then i saw it and there was just this kind of cold detachment to it that left me just like oh it wasn't exactly what i expected over time i've grown to appreciate it a lot more and i think that um when you consider the fact that it takes place in the week after after Kennedy was assassinated. It's like, well, of course she's cold and detached. Her husband was just murdered in front of her. Like, this literally just happened. And um, and so I think that the Jackie is a very interesting film. I It's not one that I'm like, I have a burning desire to revisit, but I think that it's it does some things very, very well. And I think Spencer does does too. My main issue with Spencer, I think it's a very interesting um, film. And like you said, the horror element of it, turning this into more of a horror story, especially one that began as a fairy tale, because, I mean, I was four years old and I remember my mom watching Charles and Diana's wedding. And so my entire childhood was spent watching this 
fairy tale and like any girl can grow up to be a princess which is not at all true but that's the the story that they liked to present in the media you know and then watching that completely fall apart and so i think the the idea behind spencer as a film is really interesting my main issues with it were two um one is that it just kind of jumps in and there's no inciting incident so then as i'm watching the film it feels like if I didn't know anything about Diana or the royal family or the reality of what happened here, I would think, well, she's nuts and the family was kind of kind of right to be concerned. I don't feel like there's enough of understanding what was really going on for someone who doesn't know. Um, and considering that we're now in 2022 and we have full-grown adults who have been alive since, like, that were born after she died, you know... Um, I think that that's something that needs to be considered. And then the other, the other just issue I have is that I'm just, I'm tired in general of movies about Diana that just focus on the bad and don't, you know, I I just, I wish that they would just let the woman rest in peace. And if they're going to continue telling stories about her, let's see the fun. Let's see her hanging out with Elton John. And let's see her hugging AIDS patients in the 80s when that was seriously considered, you know, dangerous and scary. Let's see her setting up, you know, foundations to clear the landmines in, in you know, places and and just seeing her be a mom. And I think that the best parts of Spencer are when it's just her and the boys. And... um. So that that was my feeling on it. It's not that it's a bad movie. I think there's a lot of really good that good things that it does. I wasn't sold on Kristen Stewart personally as as Diana, um, but I think the movie itself. It's like I just <laughs> when you can't get past the the idea, the overall like concept of the film, it makes it hard to really be on board with it. But it's not because mm-hmm. I think it's it's bad or a waste of time or any of that. Yeah, I, I understand that. And I think that, yeah, it, it is definitely, it's a very specific film and it's very embedded in a specific time and a part of her story. And I, I do agree that it would be nice if we're going to keep on talking about Princess Diana, which we don't have to, we can right. just let this stop. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if we're going to keep on doing that, we really do, you know, there, there needs to be greater variety in our understanding of who she was. Um, at the same time, I do not object at any point to a film that basically makes the royal family out to be vicious monsters. Um, <laughs> and watching this, I was just like, oh, they're horrible. Oh, run, girl. Oh, run. And even though I know, you know, it's it's a very triumphal mm-hmm. film in a lot of ways because you get the sense that she's escaped. Yeah. Even though you know eventually what is going to happen to her. But there is this, this triumph at the end which I did like a lot that it wasn't simply oh and then she suffered and everything was terrible the trip Um, to KFC was a little bit of overkill though yeah like why do we need to know this part yeah I I think that I think that the ending was a little trite I there there's actually a point at which I was like now we can just cut the film off and that's it that's the end right um but but I I liked the fact that it gave her it gave her a triumph it didn't end in tragedy yeah, uh, yeah, and I, and I liked I liked that because so often the stories of Diana, you get this just sensation of like, and even though she was happy in this moment, it was all going to go horribly wrong, and she was going to die. You know, mm-hmm. it's that kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah, I I I, I did like the film. Um, 
but I actually liked the film on on balance. I liked it more than Jackie, so because I don't like the Kennedys that much, and I'm not that interested. Oh, the in Kennedys, the Kennedys suck. <laughs> I'm not that interested in the Kennedys or in Jackie or a lot. And, yeah. yeah, like like all of that. I'm not, and I, I find it interesting to kind of tell this from the perspective of these women who are involved in these you know royal households or whatever. But um, but I was just like, yeah, but I don't, I don't want to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> don't make me do it. Um, what do you think his third one's going to be about? I have no idea. Is there I another? I think it's going to be. Yeah, supposedly he's doing a trilogy. Marilyn. I was thinking if we're going with like the royalty type of thing, Grace Kelly. Yeah. I was going to. Yeah, that's that's a good guess. <sighs> Anyways, all right. All right, prediction. I don't know. We'll see. Some people are pressing for him to do a Britney Spears movie, and I'm like, no, please don't. No, please don't. Please leave leave Britney Britney alone. Leave Britney alone. Exactly. (laughs) She's finally free. Leave her alone. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Oh, God. Anyways, so we hope that that, like, gave you a little bit of our insight, Connor. Thank you so much for your question. And we we do try to answer these questions any time we fashion when we have actually seen the films that you ask about. (laughs) Yeah, we don't Um, like to talk about stuff when we don't know what we're talking about because we are women. (laughs) I mean, I can definitely just, like, make it up and be like, oh, yeah, totally love Spencer. probably just bullshit my way through it but yes i have actually seen the film it helps um so we wanted to talk for the rest of our time we want to talk about folk horror and specifically about the documentary um woodlands dark and days bewitched a history of folk horror which is directed by uh kirla janice and is a very long and very involved uh, kind of investigation of the history of folk horror, what folk horror is in, in film uh, and, and what it looks like and kind of, it's, it's a very comprehensive film in a lot of ways. It does try to kind of cover a lot of different methods and modes of folk horror. Um, and this, this feeds into the, one of the questions that we got, which was how do you define folk horror? Um, this is from at Noah Saturn and uh how do we define folk horror because even the documentary is kind of like well it's sort of it's more a mode than a genre um which i i definitely agree with but it's it seems to be very much about this idea of the past the deep past right the pagan past a lot of the time in, in at least in american and in british folk art it's about the pagan past um or the indigenous past kind of coming back to the surface and the old ways returning, right? That's that was a phrase that they used a lot throughout the documentary. Um, the old, you know, we're going to go back to the old ways. We're going to rely on the old ways, and so a lot of it tends to do with paganism, with the occult, um, and definitely a certain interpretation of paganism and the occult. Uh, kind of coming into conflict with modernity in some way, whether it's invading modern spaces, whether it's modernity dredging up the past and kind of creating a problem as a result of it. Um, and, you know, very, very often, I think I think that the title of the documentary actually kind of says, says a lot, Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched. It's this idea of the darkness in the woods, the, the, the folklore of an area, whatever area that happens to be all of the the deep the deep past the deep history 
Um, and very often the buried past, the past that has been kind of covered over by Christianity, by colonialism, by whiteness at some level, um, and that it's coming back to kind of haunt the living and to haunt the people who believe that they have gone past it, to, who believe that they are rational and collected human beings that don't have anything to do with the silliness anymore. Um, so what, what were your thoughts about that? Karen, what do you think folk horror is and your, your feelings about the documentary generally? Um, I think you, you've given a pretty good summation of, of how I would describe it, too. I think I would add that there's sort of this, um, not quaintness, that's not the right word, but sort of this, like, separation from, um, like, busy society, I guess. Because a lot of times when we look at folk horror and we look at the films, specifically the ones that are talked about here or other examples that I was thinking about. Um, they tend to be isolated communities, somewhere kind of out, um, like small towns are a big one. Um, yeah. that kind of thing where, where it's not like, <laughs> usually you're not going to have a folk horror film that's set in the middle of a big city. Yeah. It's, it's that rural or agricultural society. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, that's, I think that there are some examples. They even talk about, like, Candyman, for example, where mm -hmm. there are some some folk horror elements to films, even when they are set in the middle of Chicago. But, um, but yeah, by and large, it's going to be, there's like an, there's an isolation element to yeah. it that's, that's really key. Overall, I thought the documentary was interesting. I, uh, I was not prepared for it to be three hours long when I turned it on last <laughs> night. I was like, oh, all right. Well, I'm sitting, I'm settling in. I'm sorry. I, I thought you knew. I didn't realize no. that you were unaware. Yeah, it took me three days to watch. Yeah, that makes sense now. Um, but I, but, but it's okay. I mean, it was fine. And, and I was glad that I had the time to sit down and, and watch the whole thing and, and finish it. Um, by the end, I was getting a little tired of watching it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I wish I would have broken this up into multiple sittings and it felt like something that would work really with shutter likes to do these um series like they have the horror noir series they have um the cursed films series where they're broken up into multiple episodes and i think this would work really well and you could expand and and do some really cool things if they had this split into it's broken into six chapters but if they had six episodes that were an hour, hour and a half each, um, or even a little longer, or you could even spread it out a little bit more and dive deeper. Um, I think that could have been really cool. Cause I think that it's not that, I think that this is a pretty comprehensive documentary. And I think that there's a lot that they accomplish and talk about in it. Um, but it, I think they could have just dived a little deeper as what I'm trying to say. And, yeah. and I think that overall, um, the people that are, that are speaking, I think they're, they're knowledgeable. They're, they're, uh, she didn't get just a bunch of dummies <laughs> to talk about this topic, but I was a little frustrated with some of the people that were talking partly because of who wasn't talking. That's a big part of it. Mm -hmm. And partly because some of it was some things that were and were not said that I, I had some problems with, so. 
Well, let's talk about that. Um, because, because I, I made, I made a lot of noise on Twitter last week, (laughs) um, complaining about this. And then, and then I got into it with a, a, someone else who's decided that he needs to make a a documentary about women in horror. And then that got very confusing. Women who like horror. Women who like horror. And then it turned out that it wasn't actually his idea and he's not making it, which I, I still am so confused and there were people Mm -hmm. yelling at me anyways. Um, so, so one of the issues I think that, that immediately kind of jumps out in this film, particularly as it goes on, yeah, um, is the number of middle-aged white men who are talking pretty continuously throughout the film, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to, you know, everybody else. And there are a number of white women uh, who are interviewed and, and who, who talk. There, they do get, you know, they, they do get some indigenous scholars, um, some black scholars, some uh, Latinx, Mexican, Brazilian scholars, etc. But I was watching this and I was like, you know, it's it's one thing when you're kind of talking about the American and the British elements of folk horror, but the longer it went on, I was like, why is a British guy talking about ganja and Hess? Mm-hmm. Why, why is his, like, th- because that's what we were getting. We were getting at one point this voiceover, <laughs> almost, that is, is a, a white British man. And I'm like, but it, this is like a seminal black horror film. Yeah. Why is, a, wh- why is a black person not speaking? Why, is, why aren't their voices being featured more heavily? And, and I, think that, I think that that then, then leads into that broader, that broader issue of, well, why aren't these voices being featured more heavily throughout? Mm-hmm. Right, because the idea that only white middle-aged white British men and a couple of white women can talk about British horror feels yeah. very disingenuous. That's that's ridiculous. You know, I'm certain that that some of the black scholars would have insights and things to say about these films. Mm-hmm. So why are we not centralizing them? And as a result, I think that the the documentary really missed a chance. Um, to to broaden the in, the inclusivity of it of what it was approaching and also to actually broaden the the discussion because yeah. when you begin to get into discussions of folk horror which is so heavily weighted towards women and towards indigenous people right um, because it is this it's this concept of the past coming back to you know smack modernity in the face mm-hmm. and very often modernity is represented by white patriarchy by white men. And to just have white men, what, regardless of what they're saying, to have them still be the ones who get to, to have the loudest voice is really kind of unnerving and it's distressing. And, and uh, this was something that I, I realized having watched the three, what they call kind of the three foundational films. The unholy trinity of folk yeah, horror. Mm-hmm. of folk horror. And when I watched those, I was like, okay, two out of three of these films are really fucking misogynist. (laughs) Like, shockingly so. How did no one really get into talking about this? Well, the answer is because it's all a bunch of men talking. Yeah, well, and one of the problems... So, yeah, exactly 100% agree with everything you just said. And one of the problems is when you have some people who are scholars, but it's not their experience, and this is why representation matters... Um, like, it's good that these people are educated. It's good that they, they have taken the time to really study what they're talking about. But because this isn't part of their experience, this isn't their history, when we're, especially when we're talking about, like, the Asian and indigenous and, and black folk horror and, and, um, 
there's a really, you know, interesting section about African um, folk horror and stuff. But one of the problems is that then you end up with some some points where they're saying things that are just like, wait, what? For example, this made me mad and I'm still mad about it. They're talking about <laughs> children of the corn. And start equating that to the Mormon church. And I was just like, <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> You don't, like, factually what they were saying about the foundation of the Mormon church was not incorrect. They were right. But equating that to the children of the corn was so disingenuous and so flat out wrong that it was offensive. And I understand that people have a lot of opinions about the church and they're not all unearned, you know. There's a lot of problems. But, and there are a lot of us from in the inside that are working on that, you know. But, but just the comparison was just, it was so odd and it made it sound like they were saying something that I don't think that they were. I think that their point was just about the origins of of this American religion and and how that similarly is represented in this Stephen King story. But because they don't have the actual experience of being part of the Mormon church, I'm assuming, what they ended up sounding like was that they're saying that Mormons are a bunch of children in the corn that are just going to kill people for ritual sacrifices. And I'm just like, no, shut up. Stop talking. You, you <laughs> Why don't... are you here? Wait, wait, wait. Are you saying the Mormons do not ritually sacrifice adults? Only you, on Sundays. Is, is that what you're saying? Because now I just have to reevaluate everything. <laughs> no, but I, I think that's a really good point. They're they're talking at that level. They're talking about kind of uh, homegrown American religion, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the the different permutations that Christianity has taken in the American landscape and the relation be between that and horror, right? And and they and they talk a little bit about like the Amish as well. That kind of you know well, they're a little bit odd. We don't know what to do with them. So obviously they're frightening. Right. Uh, and, and so I sort of understand it at that level in terms of the comparison that's like, well, they're, they're different from kind of the mainstream, mainstream concepts of Christianity. Yeah. Therefore they're frightening and they're kind of used as these, um, these boogeymen uh, in, in American folk horror. But at the same time, when you have people who are talking about that, that don't actually have much, that actually feel that way in some ways <laughs> about Mormons or Amish or Mennonites or any of the other kind of smaller religions that exist in the United States. Um, it, there is that sense of like, you, you actually think that these, these people are like sacrificing humans, right? That's what yeah. you think. Like that seems to be what they're doing. Or at least have at some point in the past. Like that was and, part of their, their yeah. practice. <laughs> and, and it becomes increasingly, I think, prevalent in the film when they begin talking about um, non, like when they get out, even outside of America and outside of Britain and begin talking about, you know, Brazilian or Mexican or mm -hmm. Japanese. I was sitting there going like, wait a minute, did you not have a single Japanese scholar? I know. I was horror. thinking that too. I was like, where, where are the Japanese people? I know like, that they are out there. There's got to be there. Ha I know that they you exist. Pick like, up I, a phone and call a university. Yeah. So, so there was that sense of like, wait a minute, you're, t you're basically giving me kind of a Wikipedia entry on Japanese ghosts. Yeah. Right. But as a result, and as a result, I think that those sections of the film really do feel light right they, yeah. they feel very superficial and they don't have the depth that like the discussion of british folk horror does and i'm glad that it does but it doesn't have this depth because you're talking with a bunch of scholars who some of whom are very knowledgeable etc but are basically moving further and further away from their 
intrinsic understanding of cultures. And even if they know a great deal about Japanese culture, there's still white people who mm. are studying Japanese films, not Japanese people or even Asian people generally who are yeah. studying Japanese films and are talking about these from a more intrinsic understanding of the culture that they're coming out of. It's funny because I think that they actually kind of made their made our point for us, I think, um, without intending to, when they brought up the movie Midsummer. And specifically, the person that was talking about it was saying that it was making the point of, like, this movie is set in Scandinavia, and um, and it's trying to use this idea of these Scandinavian, like, rituals or history or whatever, but it's a very American story, and it's told through a very American lens. And that's exactly what the entire documentary does. Yeah, it, it, it definitely through an, I would say, an American-British lens yeah, in yeah. a lot of ways. And, and you know, you, you, I began to feel the same. I liked the fact that they got an Indigenous scholar to talk about, um, to talk about this whole, this whole concept of the, quotation marks, ancient Indian burial ground, mm-hmm. um, which I think is very necessary conversation to have. But the problem is it was like one Indigenous scholar who is, who's talking about this, and then he doesn't come back like it's not right. like he's a part of them they kind of have this main panel of people who are talking about all of the different kinds of films that they're discussing one of whom is just really obsessed with the term full quarter and was surprised to find out he wasn't the one that thought of it first <laughs> well you know middle-aged british men they always think that they they thought of folk horror but it was first. like every time it came back to him he was just talking about the term folk horror and i'm <laughs> like oh there's that term again it's like yeah dude because you're not original <laughs> Anyway, well, and and one of one of the things that you know I I was thinking about again in terms of my my own perspective as as a woman is like I say some of these things that are getting missed or glossed over, and if I know because I watch a lot of British folk horror, I watch a lot of American folk horror, so I definitely was able to un, you know follow what they were talking about. I'd seen a lot of the films that they were talking about, um, and I'm like, oh yeah, this is exactly the kind of shit that I love. <laughs> And then I went and watched some of the films that I hadn't seen. And I was like, you know, one of the things that you're not really addressing is the fact that so much of folk horror is very misogynist and is very frightened of women and is particularly very frightened of young women. So I went actually today and watched The Blood on Satan's Claw, which is kind of treated as this this one of the three kind of unholy trinity of the Witchfinder General, um, the Wicker Man, and the blood on satan's claw and the blood on satan's claw was the only one i hadn't seen so i was like i'll watch it uh and then i was like oh is this film advocating witch hunting because i think that it is um it's (laughs) and and it 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 is i I didn't get a chance to watch it i don't want to spoil it but the whole story is basically that this this young man this is it's in the 17th century uh in some like nondescript British location in the countryside. Um, And this young man who's plowing a field and he plows up uh, what seem to be human remains. But they're weird, right? They're weird human remains. And one of the the children, the young, actually the young woman, she's about 16 years old, um, in the village gets a hold of the claw that he has wanted, that he has plowed up. And she becomes like- Is it Satan's claw? It is. Uh, is and there she becomes, blood on it? She becomes this like devil's disciple who's like leading all of these children 
into devil worship and satanic rituals and all of this stuff and like all these kids are getting possessed they're like murdering people um and then and then like this this male judge who is literally just referred to as the judge comes back to the village it's just like here's what we're gonna do we're going to we're gonna kill them all and they go to hunt down the children led by this adolescent girl who's very heavily sexualized <laughs> um, to kill them all and the film is like yes this is what should be happening we are going to kill them all with a cross and i'm sitting there going like are uh, what you we're gonna murder the devil worshiping children and this is advocating witch hunts. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, this is something to discuss. So it, but that that's one of the things that I, I felt like the documentary was like glossing over or missing or something. It's like, this is not just, you know, oh, it's kind of talks about female sexuality. It's just like, no, this is about the filmmaker and the film itself having a deep seated fear of female sexuality and of particularly young women and and also of children right and so it's this it's it's a fascinating film in a lot of ways because it really is about this like darkness and violence and patriarchal terror right but it's not questioning it it's very much like what we should do is kill all of the witches i mean we all know teenage girls are scary so i mean and this girl at one she tries to seduce a priest who then oh who then is like no i cannot be seduced and then she accuses him of rape <laughs> oh, like geez. it's this whole thing and i'm sitting there going like are you actually kidding me with this like we're, we're serious right now and and now i'm not saying that you know this film shouldn't be talked about i really do think that it should but these films from a feminist perspective are very much about white male fear mm -hmm. and about patriarchal terror and particularly christian patriarchy and the, the documentary does address that but it doesn't address it enough in my opinion because they're they're kind of glossing over the fact that that this is not a critique of a lot of the time it's not necessarily a critique of white male patriarchy you know we're talking about uh depiction does not necessarily equal endorsement nor does it equal critique um this is not a critique of, of white male patriarchy this is actually like we need more white male patriarchy. <laughs> the problem with this generation is it's not enough white male patriarchy. <laughs> and it's it's interesting because actually this film came out in 71 and um, was sort of treated as, as a response to the Manson family murders, which, you know, and if you look at the way that the Manson family was depicted, there's often this whole talk about, you know, this free love, these young women seducing people, all of that stuff. So it's interesting within that cultural context, but that cultural context needs to actually be addressed. Yes. And when it is only being talked about by a bunch of British men, that doesn't give you the full picture, like what we're yeah. talking about. So this is why when you're doing projects like this, if you're directing a series or a documentary that's going to dive into these types of films and really talk about them, you need to get people that can talk about a whole range of, of things to do with the movie, not just, hey, this is a good example of a folk horror film. <laughs> <laughs> so it's weird to me. It's frustrating to me because this movie was directed by a woman and yeah. it's one of those things where, see we don't always get it right either. And this is why we need lots of voices talking about this stuff. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and I think that if, if me as a white woman, I'm sitting there going like, you're missing a whole bunch of stuff that, that mm -hmm. needs to be addressed. I cannot imagine what they are missing in some of the Mexican or Brazilian or right? Japanese folk horrors, right? Which is not my specialty at all. That's not like I'm, I, I don't have special insight into those films. So if these guys are missing all of this stuff that I can recognize, you know, I, how much other stuff are they also missing? Right. Well, perfect example. I mean, they talk about the movie La Llorona, which is the Guatemalan film from two years ago, which is amazing. And we love it. We both have talked about how much we love that film. And I can talk about why I think it's great and what I think it does as far as, you know, the idea of generational trauma and overcoming the sins of the past and and facing reckonings for past bad deeds and, and all kinds of things like that. But I can't talk intelligently about specifically the history of Guatemala or, or the Guatemalan folklore that inspired this story or any of the, the political issues that are at play in this because I ha I didn't grow up learning that stuff. I and I haven't as an adult learned that stuff and I have never lived it. Even if I, you know, studied it in school and learned about like conflicts or, or genocides or anything like that, like I still haven't lived those experiences. So there's a whole wealth of things about La Llorona specifically I cannot talk about because I do not know, no matter what I've read in a book or what I took away from watching the film. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's okay. That's good yeah. right? in a lot of ways because it says like, oh, you have something to learn. We all have something to learn. And there are voices that need to be, that need to be featured, that need exactly. to like actually have, you know, there need to be more voices essentially. Yeah, um, which give you broader context and deeper wealths of, of understanding because the, the reality is that even if I knew everything about the history that is involved in, in this particular film or any film or like the history of like, Japanese ghosts and storytelling or, or anything like that, like just knowing it intellectually also doesn't change the fact that I will never have these experiences. Like that's something that is just not going to be possible in my life. So no matter how much I learn, no matter how much knowledge I gain, it's, there's still always going to be something missing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, and I, I want to talk a little bit more about, about women in folk art specifically, because we're, we're a feminist film podcast. We are. <laughs> As I have been informed, I think that some dude actually said, oh, you're a feminist. It's just like, yeah, it says it right what in the title. give it away? <laughs> oh my God. He got us. Oh no. Um, <laughs> so I, I think that one of the interesting elements, this is something that the documentary like I said, I don't think it touched on it enough, but it got me thinking, definitely, um, is about the, the feminist aspects of folk horror and this whole idea, because the, the witch, the concept of the witch figures in very heavily into folk horror in one way or another, whether it's specifically about witchcraft or whether it's more of a general sense of, you know, the, this devil worship, the power of women, the power of, like I say, female sexuality. Um, and the threat that that poses to patriarchy and, and particularly to white maleness. And there is definitely a relationship that is drawn between women generally, the supernatural and colonized peoples. And those tend to be kind of in different kinds of folk art, those tend to be kind of melded together, smushed together. Um, and, and it's that whole sensation of women having a deeper and longer and more intimate connection 
to the past and to past rituals, to past cultures, um, and to and also just as conduits of evil, basically. Uh, and this can be represented in a very kind of positive, uh, almost positive way. And I wouldn't necessarily say positive way, but more positive way. Or it can be represented in a very um, not positive way, very dangerous way. But women are almost always in folk horror films. They are dangerous figures. Um, one of the things I know that I like a lot of, about a lot of these films uh, is that there is this sensation of rebellion that women get to kind of take on all of this power. The witch gets to absorb all of this power. You know, even watching this, the, the blood on Satan's claw, um, which I had all kinds of problems with. I was like, man, 16 year old girls have a lot of like power over everybody. They can just decimate a fucking community. Like, wow, we got power. Um, I mean, isn't that how you spent your high school years? <laughs> I mean, I wish that I'd known. I totally would have. Uh, but I, I think that- Well, that in the documentary, mean... The Craft, it told you what to do. <laughs> but I think that stuff like The Craft actually does, which, is, which does have folk horror elements in it, right? Mm -hmm. um, does like kind of create that sensation of, of this power of women that women just need to tap into or able to tap into and that- um, patriarchy is always going to try to fight against and push down and react to. Uh, one of the, the films that I think kind of typifies this in a certain way is um, uh, The Wicker Man. The 1970, now I'm blanking. 73, on. I think? 73, yeah. The original one, not the Nick Cage one. We're not going to talk about that. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, <laughs> Only if you want. I don't know if I've seen the Nicolas Cage one. I feel like I must have, but I can't specifically remember watching it. Bees, the bees. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, if you want to see Nick Cage like punching women in the face, go for it. <laughs> well, uh, he doesn't. No, I do not. Um, but yes, the original '73 version, which actually does create this like spoiler alert for the '73 version, in case anyone has not is listening to this and has not seen it. Skip ahead a little bit. Uh, in the 73 version there there's this you know gorgeous wonderful kind of uh, utopia almost of summer isle um where this this little girl has apparently gone missing and they they get a a constable comes over from the mainland to sort of investigate her disappearance and um and it's it, it paints this society as really lovely <laughs> Like they're agricultural, but they're like, oh, we're having a really nice time. You know, we're, we make the honey and we have the harvest and we dance around the maypole and everybody is kind of having a wonderful time. It's, it is very sexual, but it's very kind of free. Yeah. You know, it's interesting about the way that this island is introduced is a lot of times films like this from the very beginning when the cop shows up, there's and like going into the wicker man you obviously know something's off but i feel like the way that this community is introduced it's not as the feeling of that something being off isn't as immediate um as as it would be in other films where there's like this creepiness to the saturated like like in midsummer you go into that you're introduced to this little community and it feels off from the beginning because they're like tripping on drugs and stuff but um, but I don't know. In The Wicker Man, it feels a little bit more like, yeah, I could totally move here. 
Well, and I think that that's the strength of The Wicker Man, honestly, yeah. because you're watching the entire film. And I, I remember the first time I saw it, I was like, I was like, why is, why is everyone like, oh, this is a horror film? Like, this is kind of nice. You know, so it's a little weird, <laughs> exactly, but okay. Yeah. Like, everyone seemed to be having a nice time. The only really unhappy person in the entire film is the constable, who is like all kinds of repressed yep. and very deeply unhappy and is just like really aggressive and nasty and everything. And then, of course, you get to the last 10 minutes of the film and it's kind of revealed that, oh, by the way, he's a human sacrifice that we're now <laughs> going to burn alive in The Wicker Man. But weirdly enough, even though as horrifying as the ending is, I do admit that in watching, I was just like, okay. <laughs> like, there is, there's almost the sense of satisfaction of seeing this guy who has not been a pleasant human being um, and, and is sort of this representative of this dominating Christian patriarchy, right? Basically being told you don't have any power here and, and literally being lit on fire. Um, <laughs> and, yeah. and so the horror in that is, is the fact that, it, that he's lit on fire and that this world is made to look so attractive. So it's a really interesting film in terms of how it represents the, this, this kind of pagan darkness, right? As actually being very light and joyful and the Christianity elements as being very dark and destructive in some ways and lacking understanding, lacking acceptance. Yeah, and it's, and it's funny because like when it gets to that end and you're watching this happen and it's like everyone's singing and dancing and they're just having a good old time. And, and like you said, it's, it's done in such a deliberate way because it really feels like these guys aren't scary. This is just part of their society. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it does draw you in in that way. Yeah, right? it really yeah. does. Um, and, and, you know, and I felt in a similar way, it's, it's a very different film, obviously, but I felt a similar way about The Witch, when at the end of the film, I, I know that I've talked to a number of, um, of people, and particularly men, who have really, really disliked the ending of the film. It's just like, well, but she, she you know, gives in to Satan. And it's just like, yeah, it's the only way that she can have any kind of freedom or safety is by going over to the dark side. Patriarchy in this world is so dangerous and so violent is, is that the only choices that she has at the end of that movie are either go and join the witches and dance naked in the moonlight and have power or go back to the village where you are definitely gonna be burned as a witch, right? That's yeah. the choice that she has. And at that level, the, the film is very triumphant in a certain way. It's, it's basically like, all right, we're gonna go, we're gonna go along with that because that is the way that women are able to be free in this incredibly oppressive society. Yeah, it's interesting, especially, and this is not, this is not only men that do this, but it seems to be prevalent, at least maybe it's just that I talk more to men about movies in general, but, um, but there is this weird expectation for stories that center around women to be clear cut to ha like, if a woman does something that is questionable morally, that that just makes her all bad or, or, or. I don't know. Like there's, there's less of a tendency, it seems, um, to really dive into the, um, what am I trying to say? I'm not Motiva sure. Her motivations. <laughs> yeah. Like the, the, 
to really look at the fact that her motivation is justifiable, but even if the, the choice isn't, like, a good choice, but when mm-hmm. she has choice between two bad things, obviously she's going to pick the one that's more power. But it's just interesting to me, I guess, that the conversations I have with men, like just what you were saying about how this has been something more of men being dissatisfied with the mm-hmm. ending, um, that when it's female characters... There's less acceptance, I think, of a woman making a bad or questionable choice than there is of a man. Because there's this sense of inevitability when it's a man, but not so much when it's a woman. Well, I I think that it comes down to the sort of virgin whore dichotomy, which which still exists in our culture, where... And and I think the witch is a good example. You know, if you really look at the the ending of that story, there there are two choices that she has to make. Her entire family has been murdered. Mm -hmm. Um... So she now, if she goes back to her original village, what will happen is they will figure out what happened. Yeah. And she will be burned as a witch. That's what's going to happen to her. She's going to die. Yes. Um, and now she, if she does that, she will die in her own awareness of her innocence. So she will remain innocent at that level, mm-hmm. right? But the she'll other, be the only one that knows. Yeah. the The other choice that happens is is it, she signs the book right she goes over to the dark side whatever you want to say she joins with lucifer and the witches and everything um and in that at that case she survives she has power she has a certain degree of freedom again the really the only kind of freedom that is offered women in that society so she can die and suffer as an innocent or she can survive and thrive as a as a monster right the choice, I think, for a woman viewer, for a female viewer, is pretty fucking obvious. The choice that a lot of male viewers want her to make, I think, is they want her to go back and die. Um, they want her to remain innocent. They yeah. want her to be the to victim. sacrifice herself for by standing up for what's right, yeah. Yeah, they want her to be the victim. Um, women, I think, at, at some level, and women, in my experience, like the witch more than men do, uh, is that women recognize that given the choice between being a victim and a monster, you are going to choose the monster because the monster has power, the monster has safety, the monster has some kind of freedom. And it's it's a false choice in a lot of ways because it's a choice that you're making under this incredibly oppressive patriarchal structure. But for a woman existing in that culture, that's the choice to make. Mm-hmm. Um, Yes, I have strong feelings about this. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> uh, this is the podcast where we have strong feelings about things. About all the things. But I, I think that that's why one of the reasons why folk horror appeals to women so much um, mm-hmm. is that there is this kind of glimpse into monstrosity that is that taps into what being a woman is, right? And a woman living under patriarchy and saying that, like, you know what? I'm going to be the, the, the witch. I'm going to be the monster. Um, and I'm going to kind of enjoy it while it happens. Yeah. Um, well, one of the final kind of questions that we had, uh, which was also from Noah, is what are good folk horror films made by women? And this was interesting because I actually sat there going like, oh, dear, dude, I'm trying to think. <laughs> Um, but I think that there are definitely some, and there are probably ones, there are probably some smaller ones that I'm missing or that I'm forgetting about. Uh, one of the ones that I thought of right off the bat was, was Babadook. 
mm. which definitely has a lot of elements of folk horror in it. Whether or not it's 100% folk horror, I, I wouldn't be willing to say. Um, I think that Fear Street 1666 qualifies. Oh, 100%. That was actually uh, the first thing I thought of. <laughs> yeah. Good. Yes. Yeah, so I was thinking about it. I was like, well, that definitely fits. Like, but that, that is that, you know, sort of that new step in, in feminist filmmaking of the, the monster is patriarchy. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. I'm trying to think of some others. One of the other ones that, that I had is kind of Tigers Are Not Afraid, the Issa Lopez. Oh, film. yeah. Um, which isn't 100% folk horror, but definitely taps into that relationship between, um, between childhood and folklore and childhood games to kind of both create and mask the horror of reality. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I think that that, that definitely fits a folk horror mode to a certain degree. Yeah. Um, another one that I thought of that they did talk about in the documentary too, um, but that is Pet Cemetery. The original was directed by yeah. Lambert. Yeah. <laughs> and that goes into the whole, like, Indian burial grounds, which I love that they made the point of, like, there's no such thing. Because it's a multinational group that you're talking about. <laughs> but I, I also yeah. I also liked that the guy was like, I have bad news for you about all of America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was like, good point, sir. Uh-huh. Very good point. <laughs> yep. But anyway, yeah, that was another one that that uh, came up too. Well, and I was wondering if um, Ravenous would would fit folk horror. Ravenous, I don't know if I've seen it. Yeah, Antonia Bird. Um, it's uh, <laughs> so it's described as a horror cannibal western. <laughs> it's with um, uh, it's with Guy Pierce and Robert Carlyle, and uh, it it kind of. It basically deals with cannibalism in um, in like a, a an extreme outpost in California. Oh, uh, it's a fascinating film. I, you you haven't seen this one? No. Nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, it's it's like it it. Now this is kind of in part about uh, some of this the sort of idea of the indigenous uh, the indigenous peoples and the and colonialism and the destruction of the land. But it's basically a bunch of white guys eating each other, uh, and and but it, it's fantastic because it deals with the with the monstrosity of colonialism and of of white men in particular, and this desire, you know, this whole idea of getting back to the land when the land is actually basically trying to consume you. Um, it's a fantastic film. Definitely check it out if you haven't seen it. Okay, I will add that to the list. Yeah, so can you think of any other uh, folk horrors directed by women? I know that I'm forgetting some, because I'm sitting here going, like, there's got to be more that I'm just, like, not thinking of. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure. There were definitely a couple they mentioned in this that I wanted to see. Yeah, there are some good suggestions, I think, or at least some interesting suggestions I'm curious about in in the documentary, too. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things I did really like about this documentary, is that it highlights a lot of different films, and not all of them are available, but a lot of them are available right now um, mm -hmm. to watch. Like I said, I watch Blood on Satan's Claw. There are a whole bunch that are on Shudder um, as a part of this kind of promotion. Uh, and and some of the, the smaller films, like um, I one of, the, one of the ones that I suggested to you, which I'm not certain if it's still on Shudder anymore, is Night of the Demon. Oh, uh, yeah. 
1957, which is just, it's a great, like, creepy British horror movie. Uh, very weird. And it also happens to be based on one of my favorite M.R. James short stories. So definitely check it out sometime. I'm looking right now to see if it's still on there. It's been on and off of Shudder for quite a while. Uh, but definitely, like, if you can hunt it down, check it out. It, it's loads of fun. I love it. Yeah, it looks like it's gone right now. Uh, wait, hold on, maybe. It is available to stream on Fandor and Screambox. So it's out there. It's just not on Shutter right now. So any final thoughts about the folk horror documentary, folk horror films generally? I think I've said pretty much what I have to say <laughs> other than, you know, watch more movies. <laughs> So so we always end with watch more movies. That that is one thing that this documentary definitely gives you. It gives you a lot of viewing recommendations. It sure does. Yeah. Yeah. To, to the point that I was like, wait a minute, what was that one called? I don't remember. It was like, you know, Curse of the Werewolf, Curse of the something or other. Yeah. Wolf's Hole or something like that was yeah. when I was like in Australia. Um yeah, there were there were just a whole bunch that it kind of lists, but it gives you little snippets about what they were. Like, it shows a lot yeah. of footage and things. So it's not just like, here, here's a list of movies. It's like, oh, here's some things that, you know, so you can kind of decide if that's something that you're interested in or not. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I do actually encourage people to watch the the documentary itself. It it has it definitely has problems, as I think we have discussed in quite a bit of depth right here. <laughs> But I think that it also has a lot of really good things um, in it. It, it. it does kind of try to provide this overview of a pretty complex mode of filmmaking, mode of horror that I, doesn't get enough coverage, but is definitely picking up more and people are talking about it a lot more. And so I, I'm hoping that we're going to get even more good folk horror films that aren't made by Ari Aster or Robert Eggers, as much as I love Robert Eggers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Although Robert Eggers, I swear to God, I've been tattooed by you. Like, you look so much like every other white guy with a beard. <laughs> he really does. <laughs> <laughs> but then he says stuff, and you're like, oh, but you're smart. It's just like, I like you, bro. Yeah. I like you, Robert like, Eggers. He's one that I would hang out with. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, yes, let, let us take away from that. Uh, we would definitely hang out with Robert Eggers, even if he does look like every other white guy. Uh, <laughs> So in conclusion, yes, watch Folk Horror, uh, check out this documentary, and then also check out the films that are on Shudder and elsewhere because there's a lot of good stuff out there. Um, so I think that that is going to close us out for this week. Thank you so much for listening to us. And of course, thank you very much to our patrons um, who include Adriana, Ali, Connor. Connor, thank you for asking your question. Um, Heather, James, Kathleen, Cariata, Mason, Matt, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and Will. Thank you so much, guys, for uh, continuing to stick with us. We are going to have some bonus episodes coming up really shortly, um, and I'm really looking forward to doing that. If you want to join our Patreon, that's patreon.com slash citizendame, and you can get those bonus episodes. You get some fun other stuff that we're working on at the moment. And we're going to do some watch parties in the new year. Uh, if you want to go to our Zazzle store, we have we still have a Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash citizendamepod. We're going to have some new stuff up there once we finish revamping like everything. Um, you can also kick, a, kick us a couple of dollars on our Ko-Fi. It's ko-fi.com slash citizendame. 
You can go to our website, citizendamepod.com, where there will be reviews and Blu-ray reviews and a whole bunch of other things that we're trying to get to. I'm going to write a, I have a few reviews coming up. I've got some Blu-ray stuff that I am working on at the moment. You can also send us an email. We are at citizendaypod at gmail.com if you want to get in touch with us. We are also on, of course, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. On Twitter and Instagram, we are at citizendamepod. And, well, I almost really fudged that. Uh, and we're on Letterboxd <laughs> at citizendame. And I'm going to toss up some of my favorite folk horror films, and I hope Karen will too, onto our yes, Letterboxd. Definitely. Because um, I keep on forgetting to do that. So check us out. Uh, and of course, you can get in touch with us individually. I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at LH Business. Karen, where are you? I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Karen M. Peterson. And that will close us out for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Does thou understand my English tongue? Answer me. What dost thou want? What canst thou give? from me.